Hello, this is Ryan Hendrickson, Dean of the Graduate School at Eastern Illinois University, and we are pleased to get a start off to the 2019-2020 academic year. Uh, this is our third day of classes here, August 21st, and graduate enrollment again is looking just fantastic. Uh, our graduate programs are strong. We've got a number of programs that are just taken off this semester. So I'm really excited to get the year underway. But more importantly for our purposes here, I'm interested in getting our podcast started with Dr. Kevin Anderson. Again, this is EIU Innovate, where we focus in on faculty members at EIU who are doing great things, who have research agendas that are shaping the scholarly world out there, and also are engaged with our graduate students and making a big positive difference in graduate education. I'm so happy to have uh, my longtime colleague, Dr. Kevin Anderson, with us. I, too, am a political scientist, and Kevin is in the Department of Political Science. He's been there since uh, 2004. He is now a full professor, which is awesome. Congratulations. That happened a couple years ago. He's the author of two books, uh, one of which was co-authored. He's done a number of articles and essays and book reviews, and he is one of our former scholars here at EIU. So I really am looking forward to speaking with uh, Dr. Anderson. Dr. Anderson, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's really nice to be invited. Well, let's start off with some just kind of a basic question, which some of our listeners might be interested in. You've been teaching political science since here since 2004, and now we are in a very, to put it mildly, interesting political environment. All of us have been um, experiencing a very different kind of president. What's it like teaching political science in this current environment? It's, it's challenging and it's fun, and it's an understatement to say that it's different but it really is different because whether you're teaching, you know, an introductory American government course or you're teaching an upper level course in, you know, my area's political philosophy, but in any other area, one of the things you did before is you'd say, okay, here are the traditional norms of the way our political institutions work. And this is sort of how Congress works and this is how the judiciary works and this is how the presidency works. And is, since 2016, what you have to do is kind of add caveats. It's like, well, historically, this is how the presidency has worked. You know, we have a president who has, has kind of ventured off and, and taken actions and said and done things that are just, you know, very non-traditional. And so you have to spend a lot of time kind of putting things in context without, you know, being sort of super critical. You're saying, okay, well, here's why people are reacting the way they are to, you know, something that the president has done because historically that has never occurred. And so establishing context, establishing this is how our system historically has worked has been kind of the greater challenge. How are students in your classes right now compared to students in the past? Is it pretty similar or you have a different, completely different climate? It, it's similar. Uh, in that students come in and they have kind of a, a very broad sense of what politics is and you know what what our fights are about in terms of issues and things like that 
the one thing that's different is that you, you have far more students who come in with a very definitive, you know, sort of stance. You know, they come in and they're, you know, they're very uh, uh, committed to a, a point of view, whereas in the past you had students who, you know, they, they had beliefs, but they, they were, uh, the beliefs were very general. You know, they didn't have like a lot of detailed information about it. You know, they'd say, oh, well, you know, I believe A, B, or C, but when you would sort of drill down, you'd see that, you know, they didn't have like a lot of sort of specific knowledge. Whereas today, what you find is you have students who are very, very committed. They have very strongly held opinions and they have more information. I think the biggest difference is that you have people who are very, very committed to a sort of point of view or perspective or party or candidate in some instances, but they tend to have a lot of information about like one or two things. And so when you say, okay, well, great, you know, I, I understand that, you know, you're a very strong supporter of that particular issue. And you say, well, what about this? Well, they don't really know that much. So in that regard, they're sort of similar to previous, you know, sort of groups of students, but it, it makes it challenging, I guess is the, is the best term, uh, to, to teach students like that because they come in with such a strong perspective that, uh, that, that is focused generally around one or two sort of issues or candidates, and then you kind of have to broaden that, that sort of worldview to get them to look at it in a, you know, sort of instead of looking at the forest, uh, looking at the trees, let's step back and look at the forest. Yeah, it sounds like your students are pretty much like what we think of the, uh, like the American public, where they're that much more polarized and holding on to, you know, whether it is, whether on the left or the right, holding to certain positions that much more strongly. Yes, yes. They're, they're, they're very, very attached. And ironically, and um, I have a graduate seminar in political behavior, one of the first things I had students read for this week was talking about approaches to analyzing voting behavior. And one of the things you talk about is what's called the funnel of causality, you know, like what shapes a person's point of view. And, you know, it's everything from, you know, your, the, the sort of nature and structure of your family to religious influences and all these type of things. And one of the things you find is people who have very, very strongly held beliefs, that funnel t tends to be very narrow. So they're not getting a lot of outside voices coming in that are, you know, sort of shaping their point of view. And, you know, because, you know, you'll talk to students and they'll sort of hammer you with like, well, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said this. And you say, well, what about these other people? Well, you can't really trust them. And it's like, well, how would you know? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, the analogy I always tell them is like, you know, for a long time I, I thought I didn't like certain foods. And then... Once I tasted them, I was like, well, you know, this is actually isn't that bad. It's not my favorite, but, you know, it's not what I thought it was initially. So, you know, let, let's just take a moment, broaden the perspective, establish some context. You don't have to change your mind, but, you know, look at it in a different context, and it may, you know, strengthen your, set of, your original set of beliefs, or it may cause you to kind of say, wait, wait a minute, let, let, let me think about this in a, in a slightly different context. Sounds like you're doing a great job with your students because I just think it would be so challenging right now to be teaching political <laughs> science. And it's just a really, you know, people feel so intense about 
politics. And I guess we always thought they did, but then it just seems like it just gets more and more intense. But you have to have sort of a, a calmness to the approach. And also, I guess, put it in a historical perspective is also a helpful way of teaching students today of how different our current context is. It, it is. And I've, I've often uh, used the example of going over to Springfield, going to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum. And one of the kind of underrated displays they have is they have a display of contemporary newspapers from when Lincoln was running for president after he gets elected. And they're just these, you know, they have these clips and just devastating sort of stories and, you know, people insulting, you know, everything about Lincoln from, you know, he wasn't very smart to, you know, people didn't think he was attractive. Just, you know, just all kinds of things that were going on. And I said, you know, the, the thing about that that's fascinating is that kind of uh, sort of partisan rancor is not new. What's new is how immediate it is. Yeah. You know, if, you know, if President Trump says something, you know, this morning, you know, you know if he says it at 8 o'clock, well, by 9.30, people have responded and people have responded to the responses and, you know, it becomes so immediate and so uh, intense that the original statement sort of gets lost. Yeah. And th that's the thing where you want everybody to kind of slow down. Let's take a look at it. Uh, you know, let's see what, what is the issue. What are we fighting about? You know, we don't necessarily have to be, you know, going to our corners and choosing sides. There might actually be common ground, but we have to slow down. We don't have to respond you know, in 140 characters, five minutes after you, you know, come across something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's switch gears a little bit, and let's turn to your research. Uh, you've published a fair amount. I know you're working on a book. You've published a couple books beforehand. Um, one of your books, Agitations, Ideology, and Strategies in African-American Politics, published by the University of Arkansas Press, and you got another book in progress. What's exciting you about your research right now, and how does your research shape your teaching? Well, I, the thing that's that uh, is kind of most exciting is uh, when I was in graduate school. I was very fortunate to have kind of a, a group of, of people that I studied with that we figured out fairly early on that we wanted our research to be as relevant as possible. That we wanted our research to kind of feed off of what was sort of happening. Are you suggesting you know, that political science research sometimes isn't relevant? Well, you know, so sometimes it can be, you know, it can be fairly esoteric. Yeah, you know, okay. we, start, we start talking about things that very few people, you know, will, will understand. And so um, our, our current project, uh, myself and, and a couple of my colleagues that I went to graduate school with, uh, this actually started out we, we were watching, uh, we were at a conference and uh, we had sort of finished up with some other research and we were sitting in a restaurant, we were watching a news story and they were talking about the Supreme Court had made a decision in a case called Shelby County uh, versus Holder. There was a voting rights case. And uh, the Supreme Court had made a decision uh, a few months back and a number of states had just immediately started changing uh, the rules for who was eligible to vote. Uh, they would change the rules for when you could vote, things like that. And so we got really curious about, well, 
what is the effect of this? You know, you know, there's a there's a theoretical argument about you know, and the legal argument about well, did, was the Supreme Court decision to to uh, pull the federal government back from monitoring voting rights was that correct? I mean, you could have that argument, but we were more fascinated by okay, well, what happens when states actually do change these laws? So when Alabama did it and North Carolina did it and Texas and Louisiana and, and uh, Virginia and Kansas and any number of states, we wanted to know what was the on-the-ground effect. And so as we started to sort of do research and, and um, talk to people in, in those states and sort of analyze who was uh, registered and who was being affected by the changes in the law, what we found were just these kind of very fundamental uh, sort of academic questions. You know, there, there's the, you know, there's the larger question about just the essence of democracy. You know, the essence of democracy is citizens being able to voice their concerns about government, being able to participate in their democracy. Was that being undermined by these new laws? And then secondly, you had very much sort of a, a, a partisan sort of fight because you had one side that said, well, we need these laws to protect the integrity of the ballot. And then you had another side that said, well, these laws are you know, undermining democracy because you're trying to exclude a segment of the population. And so we had a very relevant sort of contemporary topic that spoke to these very large, large uh, sort of academic concerns. And so it was a, you know, it, it became a lot of fun uh, to to uh, to do the research. And initially, when we started, we thought these were going to be articles. And so uh, my friends and I would write them as sort of conference papers that we were going to revise and send out. But they wound up being linked because the paper we wrote about Kansas was very much connected to the one we wrote about North Carolina and then the Virginia and Texas cases. And then sort of real life kind of intruded in a, in a sort of an odd way, which is um, at the time, two of my, my colleagues were teaching in Kansas. And we had done a lot of this research. And then I believe it was the ACLU sued the Secretary of State of Kansas, uh, a man named Chris Kobach. And when they went to court, uh, the ACLU cited our research and they brought my, my colleagues into court to testify. Uh-huh. And... You know, I remember getting an email saying, hey, uh, you know, we've got to go to court to <laughs> testify about this. You know, you're, are, like, are, you're like, wait a minute, I want to be relevant, but maybe not that relevant. Right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it was sort of like, you know, are you finished editing your section of the paper? Because part of what they're going to ask us about is this research. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean you're going to court? And it was like, well, you know, we, we were called and, and um my colleague, my colleague Michael Smith was considered an expert witness, and he did testify uh, in this case. And it was sort of remarkable because what we were sort of discovering was that the laws had, you know, their intended effect, but they were also having this sort of unintended effect that people were trying to correct without sort of stating, you know, that this was, this was uh, a mistake. Uh, so, for instance, in Kansas, we found that their law required when you went to register, uh, you needed a uh, you needed proof of citizenship. Some in some instances, you had to have a birth certificate. Well, you know the the political argument in that is well, you're targeting 
uh, Latino residents, you know, because a lot of them were immigrants who had come in to, to Kansas to, to work in sort of agricultural fields and some industrial uh, uh, jobs in the state. But what they wound up doing was they wound up sort of disenfranchising a lot of older voters. You know, you had a lot of people who didn't have their birth certificate, couldn't find it. That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, where would I find my birth certificate? And um, one of the stories that we uh, included in a conference paper, and it will probably be in this manuscript, was uh, there was a woman, she was in her early 90s, and the only proof she had was a family Bible, which her family, you know, had recorded marriages and births and all this kind of thing. That's it. She did not have a birth certificate. And this woman had been voting for 60 years. Yeah. But by this new law, she was now disenfranchised. Wow. And uh, one of the things we were discovering was uh, you, you had state Republicans who were very loudly advocating for this. And they were disenfranchising a segment of their, of their base. Mm-hmm. And they didn't realize it. And so they were trying to come up with a way to undo that without undoing the the entirety of the law. And so things like that just became just incredibly fascinating to sort of understand the dynamics. And as we sort of developed it out, we said, well, you know what? It would probably be better if we went back and looked at this historically. And what we discovered was that there was a pattern that uh, almost every time we've had like really big fights about voting rights and who should have the right to vote and whether it's non-property owners, you know, very early on uh, a- after the adoption of the Constitution and, you know, African-Americans after the Civil War and uh, women and you know, just every sort of group is that the arguments we're having now were the arguments we were having then. Uh-huh. It, it was almost exactly the same. And so we just decided that in order to kind of fully explain the the sort of nature and relevance of what we're arguing about now, we needed to go back and establish context. And so that was when we sort of morphed it and we said, okay, let's take, you know, four of these conference papers and then sort of wrap around a much larger sort of research project. And so that was a project that we've been working on. Uh, our, our draft is complete. It's off at the publisher. And so we, we feel pretty good about yeah, it. Yeah, congratulations. I mean, that's what's always great, too, when your research, you know, you want an intellectual interest in it, and you want to be also respected by the academic community. But there's another, I guess as political scientists, most of us, we want to be relevant, and we right. want to have somebody else see our work. And so congratulations that you've generated that kind of attention. That's a testament, I guess, to your you and your co-author's work. But who do you find... Among the states, uh, you, I don't know if you did a 50-state analysis or not, but among the ones you've researched, which states are most open in terms of voting access and which state or states do you find that are less, more restrictive okay. in terms of just being having the ability to vote? Okay. Um, we, we didn't do a 50-state analysis. What we did was each state that moved to change their laws after the Supreme Court decision. Yeah, which one? Which Supreme Court decision? Uh, when it was Shelby County versus Holder. Okay. Because, uh, the, let me back up and give a little summary of that. Uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 included a section called preclearance. And what it said was any state 
that had a history of discriminatory action, they could not change their voting laws without the approval of the federal government. The federal government had like, so for instance, you know, my beloved home state of Arkansas. Uh, because Arkansas had a history of discriminatory behavior, they could not change their voting laws unless the Justice Department said it was okay. Okay. And so what Shelby County versus Holder did was that the state of Alabama basically sued and said, you know, we're not racist. You know, yeah, we did terrible things in the past, but we're not doing that anymore. We don't need the Justice Department looking over our shoulder. And what the Supreme Court said, in effect, was, right, we don't think that, you know, racism is a is a relevant problem anymore. So states can change their voting laws and the Justice Department cannot review those changes anymore. States are free to make their laws however so they say So that's the trigger. What what year was Shelby County? That, Shelby County? that was 2013. Okay. And so what we started to see was, I think it was, I mean, Alabama was first and then Texas, North Carolina, Louisiana, Virginia, uh, Kansas, that there were roughly about 13 states initially. Now we've, it's up to about 25. Wow. I think, okay. States Almost that half have, of them have done that. Right. Or half. Um, now you have states. I mean, you know, California and Illinois are are very sort of open in terms of you know registering. You know, there there's not really a lot of limits. I'll have to double check because I'm not 100 percent certain about this, but uh, I believe El- even Illinois has same day registration that you can literally register to vote the day of an election so they're relatively you know sort of open yes and full access kansas and north carolina were sort of in a weird race to the bottom i guess you could say and in the um, restrictions they put in i mean and georgia is kind of coming up right behind them what they were doing was they were curtailing early voting so, you know, it used to be like, you know, if elections in November, you could early vote roughly about a month before. Mm-hmm. And so people could, you know, they could go in and, you know, cast their ballot because, you know, election day is probably going to be crowded and, and, you know, a little bit of a hassle. Uh, they went in and, and uh, restricted early voting. Most of the changes said, well, you have to have a photo ID. And um, that, you know, most people would say, OK, well, you know, people have driver's licenses, things like that. Uh, but a not everybody drives. You have a lot of elderly voters who, you know, have stopped driving, so they may not necessarily have mm-hmm. a driver's license. Uh, you could use a photo ID. Uh, states would issue, you know, just a sort of state identification card. But in a lot of states, you had to pay for it. So the pushback was that well, this was sort of a modern day poll tax. Okay. Texas had the sort of oddest one because they required a photo ID to vote, but they excluded some things and allowed others. So for instance, university ID cards did not count. So, you know, if you were like a college kid. Now, lots of young people then, all the right, young people, right? And, you know, if you're a college kid at Tech, you know, University of Texas or Texas Tech or something like that, uh, your university ID did not count as a picture ID. So you wouldn't be allowed to register to vote. However, your concealed carry permit that has your picture on it, that did count. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And so that, you know, just got everybody all sort of worked up. North Carolina kind of rose to the top because they made those changes roughly about the time that um, they, had, they had gotten into some hot water about uh, how they had gerrymandered 
congressional district. And a federal court had struck down the gerrymander. It was like, oh, no, you can't do this. And so when they were redrawing the districts, they made these changes in their voting law while redrawing these districts in just, you know, really bizarre sort of shapes. And it sort of looked like they were combining all of this into, like, one thing. Mm -hmm. And it very much sort of rose to the point of that uh, when they withdrew the new districts, those were challenged in court. And the federal court basically was like, you know, no, we told you not to do this. You know, they and so they were like, it looks like you guys are trying, you know, it's like you're targeting Democrats with almost surgical precision. Yeah. That, that was the language that was in the in the court decision. And they were like, no, you, you know, that you can gerrymander for partisan reasons, but you guys are doing it in such a way that it looks like you're targeting minorities. It looks like you're targeting African-Americans and Latinos and things like that. And it was a really sort of odd circumstance. That was struck down in, uh, it was after the 2016 election, the, uh, the, the, the new congressional district. And after that, the court challenge to the voting laws came up and a Democrat won the governor's seat in North Carolina. And so there's a, there's a belief that they're going to modify uh, these laws. They haven't done it yet. But they're they're moving in that direction, um, and probably I'll I'll add one other thing in. Uh, Florida had a really sort of uh, kind of odd circumstance where what happened in Florida was they had added a voter ID requirement, all this kind of thing, and there had been this huge push to sort of undo the felony disen uh, disenfranchisement provision in Florida law. And so this was on the ballot in Florida in 2018. And whether or not you would allow a, fel a felon. Fel right. Uh, that if you were convicted of a felony, now as long as you're in prison, you cannot vote. But the way the law was written is that once you were out, you could petition to have your right to vote restored. Uh -huh. And the idea was that, you know, this shouldn't be a lifetime sort of punishment. And this was placed on the ballot. It won by a large margin. And so everybody said, okay, great. You know, now... Democracy it, prevailed, it, it, we prevailed. saw. Okay. And, and then what happened was, right after the election, in like early December, the Florida uh, House passed a bill that said you could only have petition to have your rights restored once you paid all the fees and fines. So, you know, if... You get out of prison, and but you've, you're on probation and, or you've got some fine or something that you were not allowed to petition for your right to vote. Hence the poll tax. Right. And, and the Florida Democrats, you know, were loud and very, you know, objected to this. And the new governor, uh, Governor DeSantis, he basically wouldn't say anything. Like when, once this was happening in, in December in January when he was sworn in. Um, and then the state Senate passed it, I believe it was in March. And Governor DeSantis just wouldn't say anything, wouldn't say anything. And then finally he came out and he signed it. And so now this is the law, and of course this is going to be challenged. And so, you know, each state is sort of unique because they're kind of doing their own thing. And it's creating a lot of kind of like yes. conflict. 
uh, around how do you challenge these laws. Yeah, yeah. Where do you, so you and your colleagues have this manuscript, it's off, it's being reviewed. Yes. What's the next big step here? Or maybe you're just taking a little downtime after that big project. Well, this is actually, ironically, this is sort of the second uh, book that we've kind of gotten out of this. The first one was we just went back and sort of reviewed state voting laws. And we, we wrote that one. I think that was, that was published in, I think it was late 2014, but it was probably 2015 was the actual publication date. And what we did was, we, we, the reason why we did that one was because we were sort of fascinated by the fact that there was no sort of uniform set of laws about who could vote. It varied from state to state to state to state. And so we were like, okay, well, wait a minute. How do we understand? Because in the U.S. Constitution, it doesn't really guarantee you the right to vote. It doesn't explicitly say that. And so each state kind of comes up with their own rules. So we worked on this project and we said, okay, the fact that there doesn't appear to be any kind of uniformity to this is sort of problematic. And so this project became, okay, here's the consequence of this. Here's the sort of, you know, highbrow sort of, you know, philosophical argument about what this might do to democracy. Here's the political fight that we're having about this. And so what I think we're probably going to do is we're, we're going to look at this and say, okay, going forward, what's the recommendation? Like, how do you solve this? Is this something that would require a national solution? Is there any political will to create a national solution for, for this question. So a real policy kind of agenda right. book maybe next right. or, that, or paper or something. That, yeah. that would be where we would go next, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Well, congrats again on generating attention for your research. And, uh, I mean, that's always, as I say, our goal to, to uh, speak right. to a large communities, and um, you're doing it. So uh, you're, you're innovative and you're making an impact, so that's fantastic. Let me go a little different direction here and just talk mm -hmm. about you as a scholar. So I, we always like to ask this of our guest. What's your favorite publication that you've um, ever produced? <laughs> uh, it, it's my first one. It, it was, it was the, the, the book, my, my first book, uh, just because that one kind of combined like everything that I really sort of cared about, you know, um, it you know it's a combination of American political thought and African American political thought and and just American politics, and it it was a way for me to kind of understand questions that I actually probably started having when I was an undergraduate about how how do we understand the the way uh, political ideas sort of get translated you know mm -hmm. uh, you know it's one thing for people to have you know wonderful soaring rhetoric and talk about democracy and freedom and equality and this kind of thing. Well, in reality, what does that mean? Um, and when I was at that stage, you know, in graduate school, when you start to work on your dissertation, I, I remember one of my professors kind of pulling me aside and he said, okay, you can do two things. You can come up with an idea that's manageable and that you will, you know, you'll be able to do and that can allow you to graduate and you can go on your way. Or you can choose something that's a passion project that you will be motivated to work on all the time. And he said, now there's pitfalls to both. And he said, ideally you want to find the middle ground. Yeah. And when I started doing sort of the background reading and all this kind of thing, 
to, to prepare for the doctoral dissertation. What I realized was the middle ground was probably safe, but I, I was going to give myself a little time. It's like, I'm going to follow this passion project. Yeah. And if I can start to produce something that, you know, seems relevant and seems, you know, like I, I can, can sort of control it and, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, write eight volumes or something like that, that that's what I was going to do. And uh, the one thing that I was able to do was like that project just incorporated everything from going back and reading James Madison and Thomas Jefferson to W.B. Du Bois and, and uh, Henry McNeil Turner and just, you know, all of these sort of very fascinating people who said, okay, I understand this highbrow concept. Here's what this actually means. Yeah. Here's what this, on a day-to-day basis, this is what this is going to look like. And so um, I, I've always, you know, I, I was proud of it when it was a doctoral dissertation. I was proud of it when I went back in and revised it as a as a book manuscript. And uh, I, I, you know, I was really, really fortunate because uh, the first press I sent it to basically called me and basically said, don't send this to anybody else. Like, we, we really like this. Yeah, you that know? is pretty fortunate. <laughs> yeah. Speaking from experience on the other side. Yeah, that's, <laughs> congrats. That's good. What, um, when do you write? I typically write, it's a habit I developed in graduate school. I typically write early afternoon. I, I typically will write probably from about 1 p.m. till about 3.30 or 4. When, when I'm working on something, I try to schedule it so that I can write mid-afternoon every day. Wow, okay. That's uh, interesting. Well, You're not sleepy after lunch? No, no, actually. A lot of people uh, have a hard time concentrating the, at that the, time. The, the, the sleepiness usually kicks in right around 3.30 or 4. Okay. So if I start at 1, I'm usually able to, to get things done before I, before I start to, to yeah, fade a little bit. Yeah. But um, now it, it works different. You know, when, when I was a grad student, I could literally do it Monday through Friday. Now I try to do that on, on, on days when I'm not teaching. I don't have a heavy load. So I spend a lot of time on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Yeah. And I typically will review what I read, uh, what I wrote before. I'll make some minor corrections, and then I'm like, okay, what's the next thing that needs to go in? And that's how it, typically how it works. Okay. Well, let me one final question about working with graduate students. You've done a lot of collaborations with graduate students and helped graduate students go to conferences Tell us a little bit about that experience, and it seems to it, it motivates you. It seems to engage you in a different way. What inspires you in that regard? Well, it, it's a little bit like you you, you want to kind of pay it forward a little bit. I had great faculty mentors who would welcome me in, you know, as a graduate student. When, you know, I I thought I knew a lot, but I you know it was sort of obvious that I you know needed to know a lot more. And so they would bring, you know, bring me and my colleagues, you know, we, we would start to learn how conferences worked and uh, we'd get a, a deeper appreciation of the literature. And so what I'd like to do with students here is, is kind of that same thing is to say, you know, the reason why you find this particular question fascinating is because it's part of a much larger conversation. And so I, I want to encourage students to sort of follow that curiosity and say, not only do I want you to follow that curiosity, but here's a way to sort of uh, really understand this, is when you go to a conference, you meet lots of people 
who also have that interest and who also are sort of curious and they can give you an insight, you know, that maybe uh, you, didn't know, you, you missed or something maybe that I didn't necessarily see. And oftentimes, you know, graduate students have fresh eyes. And a lot of times, you know, we, and I'm sure, you know, you've, you've kind of had to, to do this too, is that, you know, when we work on something, you know, we have something of a tunnel vision. We're, we're sort of wrestling with the, the sort of details of a project. And then, you know, graduate students look at it and they'll ask you like one simple question. Why are you doing it that way? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it just, you know, you kind of pause and go, oh my God, yes, yes. That's, that's a, that's a remarkable insight. But I like sharing with them and I like inviting them in and saying, okay, look, here are the other people who do this. And uh, they, they might, you know, inspire students to, to follow a passion and, and, you know, develop a research agenda. Or it may simply, you know, it may simply be that they just really start to understand very clearly what it is they're doing. And they, they see themselves in the larger conversation about a topic. And I always think that's, that's a lot of fun. And I, I think it sort of rounds out an education to have students participate that way. Well, keep doing it. You're doing a fantastic job at EIU. You're making a powerful difference with your research and your students. And you uh, help make the political science graduate program as strong as it is. So uh, thanks for your good work. And keep it up, man. It's just a pleasure really learning more about how you do your work and all the impact you're having. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind to say. I appreciate it. Let me also thank uh, Tom Grissom. We're in our third year now of putting on the EIU Innovate podcast, and I couldn't do it without him. So, Tom, thanks, and I think we're going to have a great year. Thank you.